You don't have to read much of the Bible to figure out that it's just like Jesus to upset the cultural and religious sensibilities of his day. It happens again and again and again. And for that matter, it's just like Jesus to upset the cultural and religious sensibilities of our day. Just start reading the Bible. Start quoting the Bible. Start quoting Jesus and you will, you will rub people the wrong way. It's amazing how it happens. Now, why does Jesus do this? Is he out to spoil everyone's fun? Um, is he just some sort of killjoy? I mean, why would Jesus do this? Well, based upon other things we know about Jesus and our learning even in Luke's gospel, it's actually because he cares. He cares enough to help people. He cares enough to help people not remain delusional um, about things that matter most. There are certainly things that it, it appears as if Jesus doesn't really care about. But when it comes to the things that matter most, things that relate to a person's eternal destiny, things that would relate to a person's relationship with God. Jesus cares so much, he doesn't want to leave us where we are, and that can rub us the wrong way. So in Luke chapter 5 this morning, we'll look at another occasion uh, in verses 27 to 32, where Jesus unmasks this delusion that's so popular among us, the delusion that says, you ready? I'm a good person. That's offensive. It was offensive back in the first century and before. It's offensive today because how many of us say, I'm a good person? How many of us say about other people, well, he's a good person? We say it all the time. We say it incessantly. We say it again and again and again. I'm a good person. Well, what's your relationship with God like? I'm a good person. Uh, was, is so-and-so a Christian? Well, they're a good person. I'm not sure if I've, I've been to very many funerals where I haven't heard, well, so-and-so's in heaven now because they're a good person. And while it's risky to do, and I'm offensive even saying these things this morning, I know. Jesus wants to take that delusional mask and, and take it aside so that we would actually know the reality because if you're a good person, you don't need Him. And if you're a good person, you don't understand your relationship with God. And if you're a good person, then the cross is meaningless. If you're a good person, you're actually delusional. And that's the road we're going to head down today. The occasion is where Jesus calls Levi, otherwise known as Matthew, to be a disciple. And that's the occasion. Jesus is still doing his earthly ministry around Galilee. In fact, Mark's account tells us that he is right by the Sea of Galilee. And this occasion happens. And so what we'll do this morning is work through the narrative, and then we'll talk about some of the implications. So let's go ahead and get started in looking at this conversion of Matthew where Jesus helps us to understand something about good people. It says in verse 27, if you look there with me, you'll notice, it says, After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, Matthew 9, 9 tells us he's also known as Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. 
So this is the guy that, that authored the gospel according to Matthew, uh, also known as Levi. But what's meant to jump off the page when we're reading it is, he's a tax collector. A tax collector? Oh, this ought to be good. Boy, I'll bet Jesus has got something amazing to say to tax collectors. I wonder what he's going to do. What kind of spiritual black eye Jesus is going to give a tax collector? Because we all know about tax collectors. Well, maybe we don't. But they would have then. Tax collectors? I mean, picture what's happening. Here's the tax collector at his booth, which were frequently around different regions where you'd cross from one region to another region. You'd pay your tax, your, 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 like your toll, so to speak. But picture what's happening. Tax collector? Jesus is not a fan of tax collectors. We know he's not a fan of tax collectors because if you can just mentally make the association of Matthew 18, Jesus later on is going to talk about how people who say they're Christians who keep living in sin should be treated like tax collectors. Tax collectors are, are, are the dregs of the culture. Tax collectors are, are, are not good guys. Tax collectors, everyone would be in agreement. They're the corrupt ones. They're the perverse ones. And Jesus surely is going to say something to Levi, the tax collector. If you'd like a, a good synonym for a tax collector to kind of grasp what, how they would be known, uh, perhaps the word traitor is one of the best ones. They were known as soulless, as having no conscience whatsoever. They're traitors. They take bribes. How many of you have seen or participated in, let's just say seen. I, I have a friend. Um, uh, how many of you have ever been part of or observed a bribe happening in real life, not just on TV? I've seen it a few times. I haven't seen it when I've been on American soil. I know it happens. But for whatever reason, I've been in other countries, and maybe that's the case with some of you. I, I've, I've watched bribes happen. Uh, the one that really sticks in my mind is, is being at, uh, outside the Kremlin and uh, touring and looking at different things. And our translator hired a guide who then paid off a Russian soldier so we could go where we otherwise wouldn't be able to go. And just thinking about it makes me kind of nervous, you know. And it was with my money. I didn't even know it was happening, you know. And as we're walking by this, this Russian soldier, you know, and just normal demeanor is they look at you like they want to kill you. And these are the guys you see on the postcards or in, on TV. They're standing outside the Kremlin. You know, the cool looking, you know, these, these buildings. They're right there. And, and, and the, the guide that we hired to get us where we needed to go, you know, she asked for the right amount of rubles from us. So we gave her our money. She wanted our cameras. And I don't remember what else she wanted. She put them in her purse. And then when we walked by that, that, that guard, that Russian soldier, she, you know, slipped him some money. And we just went on past all the other people who didn't get to see what we got to see. <clears throat> Wild. This is not like that. In a sense, that illustration is pointless. It's kind of interesting, though, don't you think? <laughs> In a sense, the illustration is pointless because this, what we're reading about, is not like that kind of bribe because that kind of bribe would have been uh, beneficial to the Russian soldier and beneficial to the Russian woman. Okay? They both, they both benefited from it. The reality is here... Totally different. Matthew, as a tax collector, or Levi, was a Jewish individual. 
Israel is under Roman occupation and he has betrayed his people religiously and otherwise to make money by being hired by the Romans to take advantage of his fellow countrymen and fellow countrywomen. He was hurting his own to fill his own pockets. And the Roman government was fine with that. And the Roman soldiers were often fine with it, especially if he also gave them kickbacks. It was a totally perverse, corrupt, hurtful kind of thing. And we can only imagine, our imaginations can think, if they had such bad reputations that they were the excluded, they were the outsiders, they were the ones who were not welcome. We know that's how Jesus thinks based upon Matthew 18. What would have gone on? The rates would change depending on who you are, who you know. More than likely how these things work, the people that couldn't afford the most had to pay the most. And our imaginations don't have to go very far to start concluding that when people didn't have money, they would have had to somehow satisfy the demands of the tax collectors. And these tax collectors had the backing of the Roman guards. It was a totally perverse racket kind of system and we're meant to see it as bad. And so now getting back to the passage, Jesus walks by a tax collector. Oh, I bet he's going to talk about him is where our minds are going to go. Oh, he's going to use him as an illustration and God made hell for people like you. Right? That's what we would naturally think. Then verse 27 says, And he said to him, Oh man, follow me, it says. Be one of my disciples. Be one of my official representatives. Come after me. Join me is what he's saying. Be one of mine that I claim. And, and we're meant to read that and, and be shocked and, and to be filled with dismay and say, that, that's gutsy, that's outrageous, that's crazy, that's unthinkable. How about this? That's consistent. That's consistent. That's consistent with what we just saw in Luke's gospel account. Some of you were here last week. If not, I'll remind you what we saw right before this. Right before this, Jesus claimed to have the power to pardon, to forgive sinners. And here, Jesus puts his money where his mouth is. He said he could pardon rebels. He could forgive sinners. That was so scandalous to the Pharisees. Because only God can do that. And Jesus just makes good on, 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 his, on his statement by actually doing something consistent with it. Do you see? I, I'll never read Luke's gospel account again just the same way again because just reading the flow, it's like, oh, he can forgive the bad people of the culture. He can forgive sinners. And oh, let me prove my point. Matthew. <laughs> scandalous but if he can forgive sinners Matthew proves a great great point because he would have been stereotypical bad guy in their world verse 28 is Matthew's response where he says and and where it says and leaving everything he rose and followed him now I want to get back to that a little bit later talking about the the theology of this and and, and how we can learn about salvation and how salvation works. And I want to come back to that. But for now, let's just see that as, as the simple yet powerful statement that it is. Jesus says, follow me. He leaves everything, rises, and follows him. I've got another illustration 
that is nothing like this. But it makes a point because I want us to see how profound this is. A friend of a friend of mine, so, you know, 10% of this is probably accurate. Um, A friend of a friend of mine played for the Los Angeles Lakers. So this is not my friend, but my friend's friend. And it was so fascinating to hear this friend of mine tell the stories. Uh, This was a year Kobe Bryant was out um, during the regular season until playoffs, I think. And uh, then this guy got cut from the team once they made the playoffs. That's how that goes. So love or hate the Lake Show, um, you all know who they are. He told me the story one time about when they went out to dinner somewhere with Shaquille O'Neal, with Shaq. And they're at the dinner and, and enjoying a great meal and Shaq is loving the food and amazing. I know, hard to believe. Um, Shaquille O'Neal loving food. But anyway, he's just enjoying the food and, 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 and wants to see the, the chef. And, and, and eventually they get the chef out there because Shaq wants to meet the chef. And uh, he offers him a job. He wants to hire him to come to his house and live at his house and, and be his chef. And one thing leads to another and they negotiate a deal. He's going to pay him more money and it's going to work out. Shaq gets what he wants. You know, the effectual call of Shaquille O'Neal, I guess. And uh, as it turns out, you know, it was, it was then, you know, well, when? When do I start? Well, you start now. You know, it would have been like in the movies. You take your apron off and you just go home with Shaquille O'Neal. This is not like that. Today's the day of irrelevant illustrations. (laughs) But it makes the point, and the point is this. That chef gained more by following that call. His life got better. His life got more prestigious. His pockets got fuller. What I want you to see here is... Matthew is a tax collector. Levi is a tax collector and he's got a lucrative living and he's going to follow Jesus. Jesus will later say in Luke's gospel account that he doesn't even have a place to lay his head. Jesus is homeless. Jesus doesn't have any money and Levi is going to leave it all to go and follow him. Why in the world would he do that? Well, if he knows about Jesus' reputation... It's because Jesus can offer something to him that money can't buy. Jesus has the power, we learned about it last week, to forgive sins. To pardon spiritual rebels. It's no wonder he drops everything and he follows Jesus. We'll come back to that. But it is a a, a powerful reality. Luke 5.24 The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So what does Levi do? Well, verse 29 tells us what he does. And Levi made him a great feast at his house. And there was a great company, this large company, this big company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. I love that. I love it that, that Levi is, is thrilled beyond measure. He, he knows, he's, he's been called to be a disciple and follow the one who has the power to forgive sins. 
We don't know all the details of what's happened here and we have to read between the lines, which is dangerous. But something radical enough has happened to him. I don't think it's pushing it to say he's experienced this kind of forgiveness. He's saying, I, I want to have a party. This is the right thing to do. I mean, we have the wrong concept of, oh, no, I've become a Christian. Life is boring and life is bad and I wouldn't want to tell anybody. He's thrilled. Oh, yes, there might be cost involved and some of his fellow tax collectors might think he's a total crazy man, but some might not. And after all, we're talking about Jesus and Jesus has the power to do things that nobody else can do. And he has the power to help us at our very uh, greatest need because we're all sinners, especially we know it. We're tax collectors. And so he's thrilled, he's excited, and he goes to the expense of having this big party and inviting Jesus. And so next we have the response of the Pharisees. Verse 30, and the Pharisees and their scribes, these are the the, the right-wing religious conservatives of the day uh, who didn't like Jesus because he said he could forgive sins and he threatened them and their power structure. They claim to know the Bible inside and out. They claim to know the Bible so well that they could even add extra rules and regulations. They betray themselves, or their own confidence, based upon what they do with Jesus. But that's enough of that for now. Verse 30, Pharisees and their scribes grumbled. Probably purposely chosen word. It's not always used this way, but frequently it's used in the Old Testament to, to describe Israel and their complaining against God. They grumbled, 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 professing people of God, and they don't like God. Pharisees professing people of God in another era, and in reality, they don't like God. So they're grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? It's interesting the way it's described too, isn't it? They don't say it directly to Jesus according to Luke's account. They say it to his disciples. But by saying it to his disciples, they're obviously saying it to Jesus. And by implication, that's what they mean. Why do you, why do you hang out with bad people? Why do, why, do you, why do you associate with them? Don't you know that, that the tax collectors, they, they don't go to temple? Well, that's right, they're not allowed. That's how bad they are. And, and, and they, they do bad things. Why do you, what he's getting at is, why do you associate with those guys? And in a sense, what do you think of, what do you think of the question in verse 30? It's a pretty good question. What are you doing? Why are you spending time with them? And we're going to know because we know a little bit bigger picture of things. It's not because Jesus wants to do what they do and he's not going to say, now I think Pharisee or I, I think tax collectors are virtuous. He clearly doesn't do that. But as we will hear later in Luke, in Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's why he does this. That's why he does this. He's not trying to participate with them as far as their traitor character, nature, corruption, perversion. But he became a savior. So who needs, who needs a savior? Then verse 31. And Jesus answered them. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick. Most of us have heard that before. 
makes it real simple. People don't go to the doctor and say, oh, Doc, I'm just checking in. I'm healthy. Just thought I'd give you a call on your cell phone. I called the emergency line too. left you a message. Just wanted you to know I feel good. It's just dumb. That's crazy. You call the emergency line when you have an emergency because you're sick. Jesus is making the point. He's setting it up to make the profound point that he needs to spend time with those who are the quote-unquote bad guys because they're sick and they're more apt to know it. Then he's going to, by implication, make a point about Pharisees. It's not so happy. It's not so positive. Verse 32 then says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I didn't come for the good people. I came for the bad people. Right? That's where the sermon title came from. Jesus, Jesus didn't come for good people. Jesus isn't, isn't for the good people. He's for the bad people. I've not come to call the righteous. That is the law keepers, the ones who obey God's law, that love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. I didn't come for those people. I came for sinners, for lawbreakers, and to call them to repentance. Righteous people don't need to repent. They don't have a problem. They're righteous. They, they meet God's law. Sinners need to repent. And what's so interesting is Jesus knows full well that there's no such thing as a righteous person. What he means is self-righteous. What, what he means is in their own eyes. You Pharisees don't think you're spiritually sick and so you, you, you don't need any help. You think you're spiritually healthy so you don't need any help. You don't realize you're spiritually sick. Jesus isn't speaking categorically that there actually are righteous people uh, and everyone else would be the bad people. He's not making the point at all. In fact, he's making the opposite point here. He's actually going to the people who are the stereotypical bad people and he's leaving the other ones alone. This is problematic. It's problematic and we understand why it's problematic. Because if we think we are okay with God and and I can just relax and trust in myself and do the things I do because I'm a good person. I just need to know that Jesus isn't for me. And if Jesus isn't for me, there's a major problem because the Bible says that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And that doesn't mean he saves every single individual who's ever been born. He's the savior of the world, which can mean different things in different passages, but one thing it certainly means is he's the only savior. And for Jesus to say, I'm not for you, is to say there's no hope. Two things happening, right? Levi is going, let's have a party! Right? Spare no expense. I'm so delighted and my heart is filled with joy because I'll be the first one to admit that I'm a bad person. That's so awesome. But what a contrast with Jesus' hard statements here and Him saying, you know what? I didn't come for you self-righteous people. It's dark. 
It's offensive. Just like it's offensive for, for me to look at you and say, don't say you're a good person. There's no such thing. Man, talk about rubbing the cat the backward way. And Jesus is making that kind of point. But is he doing it because he's a cosmic killjoy? No. He's the truth teller. He's trying to help them understand what he's doing. So interesting to me in Luke 18, 19, I'll quote it, where Jesus says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That's an interesting thing to say. Oh, good teacher! That seems like an innocent compliment. Good teacher! And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Why, why did you use that, that socially acceptable construct compliment? Seems like he's being a little picky. But he understands that that thinking is so permeated people's thinking and so permeated the culture. He's going to say, I'm going to take that compliment and I'm going to deconstruct it and show you that you don't get it. Why do you call me good? God alone is good. He's not denying his deity. But he's meeting them on their terms. They don't think he's God. They think he's a mere human being. And they call him good. And he's going, what are you doing? And again, that's totally offensive. But isn't it worth a little offense if you're going to help someone see that they've got the disease and that there is a cure? It's worth it every time. It's worth it every time. As far as implications go, let's talk about some of, the, some of the theology. When I say theology, I mean our understanding of God, our understanding of salvation, our understanding even of humanity and how the gospel works. Let's talk about some theological um, uh, implications to our passage. One would be the need to understand sin. And I realize I'm just telling you things that you hear week in and week out or you, you, you already know, so many of you. But let's just be reminded in this passage that if people don't understand something of the disease, they'll never understand the significance and the real meaning of the Savior. So homework is do your best with God's help to work hard at being able to explain sin in a world and culture where people don't have a biblical understanding of it. Now, granted, Romans 1, they know there's a God. Romans 2, the law of God is written on their hearts. Don't forget about those things. But God does use human beings in this process, and I want to do my best to explain sin to people and then pray for the guts to bring it up. And pray for the wisdom to bring it up at the right time. Maybe I shouldn't read people the riot act every time they say, oh, he's a good person. But for me to never talk about it, for you to never talk about it, surely there's a good and fitting and wise way you can prayerfully pursue to bring it up. It's so interesting. 1 John chapter 1, verse 10 says, If we say we've not sinned, we make God a liar. 
So let me motivate you a little bit here. When you hear me say, well, I'm a good person. You can also hear the theological underpinning behind that. I'm also saying God is a liar. That should be offensive to you. should be. Not only should it be offensive to you because we're talking about your God and I'm saying your God is a liar when I say I'm a good person because I'm disagreeing with what he has said. Not only that, but you're a fellow human being with me, so you should also feel a sense of compassion and say, you know what, Pat is delusional. And insofar as he stays in the state of thinking he's a good person, he will never realize he needs to be rescued from being a bad person. And so out of love for me too, you want to say, I got to help Pat. I can't leave him like that. I heard someone say in the, in the media this week, Associated Press, I don't know who the writer was, I wouldn't name him anyway, or her, but uh, Associated Press uh, talking about you know, this national, nationwide, major case of lying um, that we've all been watching, watching or witnessing. Uh, the writer said, we're all liars when we need to be or when it's convenient or something like that. And I thought, hmm, it's true. We're all liars. That's a way of saying we're all sinners. We're called to tell the truth and we don't. Well, let's, let's work on this one. Communicating the gospel. One of the hardest things I try to do in life is communicate the reality of sin. If you want to be a good evangelist, you want to be a, 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 a loving human being who loves your fellow uh, humanity, help them understand the disease. Help them understand. Because then Jesus makes sense. There's a reason why we have Romans 1, 2, and 3a before we have 3b, 4, and 5. So we get it. This is a big one. Maybe, maybe another underpinning or, or, or thing to remember from this passage would be that grace is not for good people. Grace is not for good people. Many of my friends who are not Christians but maybe religious think of grace as something that they earn. If I do certain things, then the church will reward me with this thing, with this stuff. And it's called grace. This kind of merit that comes from God, and it's oftentimes called grace. It's not how the Bible uses it. Grace is, is, is nothing in the Bible. Great Grace is not this stuff, this, this entity or gas or spiritual substance. It's God giving you Salvation in Christ, which you don't deserve. Grace isn't for good people. But salvation is by grace. And so salvation isn't for good people. Now, a little exercise that we won't do. I'm just into things that are irrelevant to today. We won't look around the room and stare at each other for the next few minutes. I can. It's a little more socially acceptable because I'm up front. Um, The room is filled with people who are not good people. No one in the room is a good person. Some of you might think you are. I'm not trying to be offensive. Okay, maybe I am trying to be offensive. 
if it helps you get it. There's nobody good in this room. And grace isn't for good people. Church isn't for good people. Jesus isn't for good people. He's for spiritual rebels. It's important that we remember that. It's really important that we remember that. We have different stories. We have different backgrounds. But the reality is God saves sinners. And then he calls us to worship him as redeemed individuals who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in part because the Lord used reading it to, to lead to my conversion. Maybe you should, maybe you'd look it up and, and then we'll get things wrapped up. First uh, Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 to 11, I'd like to read just to remind us um, that, that we're all bad. Um, I have this habit in, in my house, I don't tell anybody that they're good, uh, except myself, because I love my, never mind. Uh, <laughs> But I tell the dog that the dog is good. <laughs> because in the canine realm of things, it's okay to say the dog is good. So the moral of the story today is, no, I'm just kidding. You're such a good person. I might say you did a good job. Yeah, relatively speaking. But let's remember this. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous, that would be people uh, who would be everybody based upon Romans chapter 3. So this is universal will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't you know that? Do not be deceived. You know, apparently it's a pretty high level of possibility we could be deceived into thinking we're good people. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. The reason he doesn't say, and such were all of you, is because he didn't give the full list of every different kind of sin. But greater context of 1 Corinthians and Romans, everyone actually is on the list somewhere if you look at the full list. And such were some of you. He's talking to the church, gathered like this church. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's so good to see the end of that passage because we can realize that a guy like Levi, who is bad can be treated as if he's good. How? A guy like Levi, who is bad and has been bad, can be accepted by God because of the work of another, which our passage here emphasizes is the work of Christ. And this is super practical, because if we were to look around the room, we would probably look down at some people. Because you know what? I, my background is drunkenness and that's not as bad as your background or vice versa and whatever the list could be. And the reality is we've all offended God and the reality is none of us are standing before God acceptable based upon what we've done. The passage has us to know all of us stand before God based upon what someone else has done. And so we stand on equal footing. It's awesome. It's awesome to see. Levi, forgiven by Jesus, justified, sanctified by Jesus, this passage would have us to know. And so Jesus isn't compromising. Jesus is doing what Jesus does. He rescues bad people. Grace is for bad people, not for 
good people. Maybe two more things to mention implication-wise. Do notice that Christians aren't uh, Christians are not supposed to live badly. Please don't take this passage and conclude, "Oh, it's okay to act like a tax collector." I know that it's right for me to say that because of what Jesus says in Matthew 18, right? In Matthew 18, when a professing Christian is unrepentant and remains unrepentant, eventually you treat the professing Christian like they are a what? A tax collector. Which means they're not welcome. Which means don't associate with them. And so at first it seems like this really weird thing Jesus is doing. Jesus associates with tax collectors and the Pharisees go after him for it. And we're going to defend Jesus and say, it's okay to be with those guys. But then Jesus is going to go on to say, if a professing Christian lives in unrepentant sin, treat them like tax collectors, which is going to certainly mean don't associate with them. And now is this just all just, you know, alphabet soup? No, it's not alphabet soup. Because Jesus saves tax collectors to then not live a life of tax collecting. We've got to make sure we understand that to at least a certain degree. Levi the tax collector would have then been urged by Jesus to not act like a tax collector. It's pretty interesting. Jesus didn't even have to say it. Although he did in one sense, he said, follow me. So he walked away from the whole thing. He knew. He knew what was going on. He absolutely knew what was going on. And sometimes we get very confused or we send confusing messages to people who are outside, who are not Christians. It's like we have this option of of, of we're just going to circle the wagons and, 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 and just good people come in here. And that's not right. But then we can go to the other extreme and say, you know what? Anything goes. Because after all, Jesus loves sinners. Oh, careful how you think that one through. You say, that's inconsistent. It's totally not inconsistent. He called him and he followed him. Was he perfect then? I would never want to draw that conclusion. No. But he was supposed to act differently. And he does act differently. And that's a good thing we can even see here. He acts radically different. And we see this in verses 28 and 29. Well, enough for now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, not counting our trespasses against us, as the Bible says. And Levi's a great example of that. Thank you for saving someone like Levi. Because it's really easy for us to see even though we're separated by culture and time, it's easy for us to see he was a bad guy who took advantage of weak people at the expense of weak people for his own selfish uh, agenda. And certainly if you can pardon and restore and forgive a man like him, you're a great God who's mighty to save and mighty to pardon 
Reminds us of the Apostle Paul where he says he's the chief of sinners. And Lord, help us to, to realize even through those kinds of testimonies that you can forgive any sin and that you do promise that anyone who comes to you will be accepted by you. Help us to learn about salvation from this passage. Help us to be more impressed with the greatness of Jesus. And Lord, help us to do these things so that we would be productive in this world during our lifetime, acting like the kind of salt and light that you've told us that we are as believers and that we would find ourselves giving ourselves for the glory of Christ and not for things that won't matter ultimately. In Jesus' name, amen.